The Affordable Care Act survived another Supreme Court challenge, this time on lack of standing. But what actually was resolved and what does that mean for future challenges? Aaron Solomon from Esquire Digital joins us. I'm Lawrence Clutty, and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. I hope you're having a great day out there. We're going to jump right into things. But first, we need to thank our sponsor for keeping the Wi-Fi on, Noda. Noda is powered by M&T Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of Noda. No cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit TrustNoda.com forward slash legal to learn more. And that's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. Terms and conditions may apply. So grateful for their support. Thank you again, Noda. All right, let's meet our return guest, Aaron Solomon. He's the head of strategy for Esquire Digital. It's been a while. Welcome back, Aaron. It is absolutely my pleasure to be back, Lawrence. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now, do you remember the last time you were on? I was not hosting, but it was Monica Bay, and it was on our 2016 Law Technology Now episode with, uh, I believe, your colleague, Jason Moise. I do remember it well. It was a long time ago, and a lot of things have uh, have changed since uh, 2016. It's great to be back with you uh, here in 2021 as we face, as we're going to discuss today, an always uncertain future. That's right. That's right. A lot, a lot has changed since 2016. That's for sure. So, well, anyway, thanks for coming on. Help me map out this case. You know, I, I got to uh, listen to, you know, all the uh, political pundits out there on both sides of the aisle talking about this case. Was it a win? Was it a loss? And, you know, kind of, I read it and I and I read the opinion at the very end. I'm like, it sounds like more like status quo, but it was a complicated way to get there. And I want to map this out carefully. And so thank you for coming on to do that. So we're talking uh, audience about the California versus Texas case. And this was the latest in a line of cases at the Supreme Court challenging the constitutionality of the uh, Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, if you follow the political wonkery out there. But uh, Aaron, I think a good place to start here is with the individual mandate, because that's what this latest case is about. And so if you wouldn't mind just kind of opening this up for some of our folks out there that, uh, you know, probably don't follow this too much, or maybe they don't understand how it connects with the ACA, what is the individual mandate and why is it important to the Affordable Care Act? Well, Lawrence, first, that was a very, very strong lead-in. Thank you very much for doing it. This was truly the third existential challenge for the ACA, and as you mentioned, it did survive. So let's talk a little bit about the individual mandate. It's the provision of the ACA that requires individuals to have insurance. And if they didn't have insurance, there used to be a $695 fine, which was essentially an IRS levy. You would pay that fine as you were doing your taxes. Okay, perfect. And so that was the the part of it that kept people participating. And if you had income below a certain threshold, you did not have to carry that level of insurance, correct? Correct. You mentioned the uh, the trilogy of cases there. And of course, uh, in the case throughout, the justices mentioned that this was number three, but there were two that preceded it that talked about the Affordable Care Act as becoming a tax. And there was also a case that uh, referred to the federal government as a state actor when it came to providing certain subsidies through state exchanges. And of course, I'm talking about the two cases we're going to talk about here. And if you could give us a brief fly by the first one, National Federation of Independent Business versus Sibelius, and the second one, King versus is Burwell. So walk us through those and we'll get up to where we are today. So in Sibelius, which was a 2012 case, there was a 5-4 decision. So it was Sotomayor, Breyer, Roberts, Kagan, and the former and late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. 
And what they did was conclude that the provision of the ACA that required individuals to have insurance, what we just discussed, the individual mandate, was constitutional because it imposed a tax on individuals who didn't comply. Of course, five years after this in 2017, as we'll talk about soon, Congress changed the tax penalty for failing to obtain health insurance, lowering it from 695 to zero. That's going to come into play for the rest of our discussion, but it's good to at least bookmark the fact that in 2012, in the 5-4 decision, the court said, yep, absolutely, this is constitutional. And then just a quick step in real fast. Now, that 2012 decision kept the Affordable Care Act alive because Congress is not allowed under constitutional restraints to force consumers to buy something they don't want to. So that decision was necessary. By calling it a tax, you kept the mandate alive, correct? Precisely. Okay, well, let's transition over to King versus Burwell. So in King versus Burwell, which was three years later, 2015, it was a universally praised decision because people said this is clear-sighted health policy. So basically what this did is it looked at the ACA as a series of interlocking reforms, and it took away all of the judicial uncertainty that existed from the time Obamacare became law. So what it said was the outlay of premium tax credits to qualifying persons in all states. So these are, as you just said, states that had exchanges established directly by the state or those who had exchanges that were established by the Department of Health and Human Services. So the court rejected the argument of the petitioners in King v. Burwell that the plain language of the statute of the ACA provided eligibility for tax credits only to those people in states with state-operated exchanges. So again, it was another existential challenge because what the petitioners were arguing here is they were trying to basically take this one big Jenga piece out, right? To say it's only for people in states with state-operated exchanges. If they could get the court to agree to that, and the court did not, then that's probably that Jenga piece where when you pull it out, the whole ACA falls. All right, now we're getting closer to our uh, the case we're talking about today, California versus Texas. But I first want to stop along the way. We started with that IRS fine that was linked to the Affordable Care Act. Now, by reducing that fine down to zero, how did that provoke this latest lawsuit? Wow, that's a fantastic question. And it did, it provoked the latest lawsuit because by lowering the tax from 695 to zero, this was perceived as a fissure in the armor of the ACA. So that's what the plaintiffs in California and Texas believed. So going back to my little Jenga analysis, they said, okay, now here we are, 2020, when this was argued, because uh, it was argued back in November, the beginning of this year's term, if we pull out this Jenga piece, then the whole thing is gonna fall again. So that's really how we got to where we were last Thursday. All right. Now, before we get to the decision part in California versus Texas, I think the journey to get to the Supreme Court tells a story in and of itself. There was a lot invested here. And so this case started as a district court case where Texas, and as I understand, 17 other states and two personal individuals brought a lawsuit. And the district court agreed with them. It was later appealed in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. 
They sort of agreed with him, but left the door wide open for intervening states, states that disagreed with what Texas and those 17 other states were doing. And so obviously a lot invested there. So can you give us the tour through the procedural history there? I can. And the interesting thing is, even if we would have had this conversation a day before the Supreme Court made their decision, I think that a lot of us would have thought it could have been 7-2 the other way. And here's why. So at the district court level, the federal district judge in Texas agreed with the challengers and said the mandate is unconstitutional because of what we just talked about. In 2017, the change to the penalty transformed the mandate into exactly that standalone command that you talked about to buy in health insurance. And Congress can't do that. So without the mandate, the district court concluded the entire ACA has to fall. So those of us who were following this from the time of the district court thought, okay, this gets to the Fifth Circuit, they're going to change it. (laughs) The Fifth Circuit agrees with the district court in Texas. They said because the penalty for not obtaining health insurance is now zero, the current version of the mandate is unconstitutional. But the Court of Appeals said the case should now go back to the district court for a closer look at whether the entire ACA, whether Obamacare as a whole, was invalid as a result. So at this point, the House of Representatives and a group of Democratic-controlled states, led, as you mentioned, by California, which had entered the case to defend the law, asked the Supreme Court to weigh in first. And that's what happened. The justices agreed last year to do so for this year's October term. And that's where we are. All right. Now, ultimately, this case was dismissed for lack of standing. And before we get into the court analysis there, Aaron, I was wondering if you could just explain to our audience that are not lawyers, maybe didn't go to law school, why it is that the Supreme Court needs to have standing according to Article 3. What does that mean exactly? So that's a wonderful question. And I will try to explain it better than it was explained to me in law school, because I'm going to do it not in 30 minutes, but in like 15 seconds. Thank you. The Supreme Court only hears cases and controversies. So that's the short version of my answer. The little bit longer version of my answer goes like this. Look, you know, six justices joined Breyer's opinion last week, holding that neither the states nor the plaintiffs have standing to challenge the mandate. Because, as Breyer explained, to contend that they're harmed and have a right to sue because they have to pay each month for health insurance to comply with the mandate was going to be their legal argument. The problem with this argument is that although the ACA instructs them to obtain health insurance, the IRS isn't imposing a penalty anymore. So there's no other government action connected to the harm that these plaintiffs claim to have suffered, and that itself is a key requirement for standing. So that's my little bit longer, maybe 1L law student explanation. Okay, perfect. And so let's go uh, connect that with the majority opinion here. They did not find it. And there was a lot of effort here. And I felt when I read the case, I was wearing two hats. I was wearing my my lawyer hat and I was wearing my my taxpayer citizen hat. And my lawyer hat was frustrated because I felt they could have done it in maybe about one third of the amount of pages that they allocated to it. And I think it could have been a lot more straightforward. 
Definitely appreciated all of the citations, but to me, it really seemed like forest versus the trees analysis there. And as I made it from the majority to the dissenting opinion, I was still, it was a little more clear to me, but that's because I already had kind of a roadmap there and it got more clear. I went back and read Justice Thomas's concurring opinion. And that's when things kind of crystallized for me. I kind of saw what was going on there between the two sides, but you know, it was a confusing opinion, uh, you know, for, for my lawyer hat, but my taxpayer hat would have been totally lost. (laughs) So, Anyway, let's go through their analysis. So why wasn't the Supreme Court able to find standing for this case? Well, again, the Supreme Court couldn't find standing for this case. Well, let's let's step back one second and be honest. You know, I'm going to use a great NFL analogy here. But the Supreme Court really did last week is punt. I mean, they chose to punt. They didn't do a deep analysis of the constitutionality of the ACA. Rather, what they did was they backed out of the case by saying, you know, there's no standing here. Plus, there's also no injury in fact. Therefore, there's no injury that's traceable to conduct, et cetera, et cetera. But this is not contrary to what I've seen on some of the news channels that kind of want to give you just the highlight package. The Supreme Court making a deep constitutional decision or analysis about the ACA. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And so when I read the dissent, you know, I'm not sure that I landed in the dissent category either, but I did find, just from my part of it, the uh, analysis of the majority opinion, I felt that there was an injury there. And here, here's why. Now, my, my, my analysis is different, and I'm not a constitutional law scholar, Aaron, but I still felt like somebody could have claimed an injury because the analysis that they were using in the majority opinion called upon the fine is causing the injury. But I don't think people look at fines when they decide not to run a stop sign. I think they recognize that there's a stop sign in front of them. It's the law. They're going to stop. Law-abiding people will follow the law. The law says shall. And that was one of the the key remarks throughout the case. You shall do this. And the history of the Affordable Care Act was that you would get fined if you didn't do it. And now they suddenly move the fine down to zero without really changing any of the operable provisions there. So for me, I thought the door was, was wide open to, you know, a future harm or at least, you know, for the law abiding uh, among us, you know, this shall part of it causes them to buy something they wouldn't necessarily want. And so that's what I was like, from their perspective, I thought that there might've been some standing. That was different than Justice Alito and Justice Gorsuch. So why don't we talk about their dissenting opinion, just to kind of show the other side of it. What was your take on it? I, I absolutely loved what you just said, because from the perspective of what the jurists were looking at, I actually more appreciated the Alito and Gorsuch dissents, as well as Justice Thomas's concurring opinion. So I'll summarize all these very quickly. Alito and Gorsuch said that all three of this triumvirate of cases about the ACA that we've been talking about, uh, they're all wrong. And they said that Thursday's ruling follows the same pattern as installments one and two. It's both Sibelius and King and Burwell. With the Affordable Care Act facing a serious threat, they said, I love this quotation, the court has pulled off an impossible rescue. I think that's really good, personally. Now, their argument about standing is that the states have standing because, as they said, for reasons that are straightforward and meritorious, this is so great, that the states were injured by the ACA. They said the states offered plenty of evidence that they themselves incur substantial expense in order to comply with the obligations that the ACA makes them comply with. So if they were to prevail last week, 
then Justice Alito reasoned they wouldn't have to pay those expenses. That makes sense to me, which is why I'm no more or less surprised with this extremely unpredictable court that it was 7-2 the way it is. If I would have read the same decision and had gone 7-2 the other way with this argument, I probably would have nodded my head the same way as I read this. Now, one other thing I want to say is Justice Thomas, in his concurring opinion, he said, I agree with what the court did today. But I also want to praise Alito and Gorsuch in their analysis of the court getting it wrong in Sibelius and King v. Burwell. Yeah, I agree with you. The uh, the Justice Thomas concurring opinion definitely uh, clarified a lot of the issues between the two different takes on it. And so, well, let's wrap it up, Aaron. I've just got one more question for you. We're running out of time. And so, you know, ultimately this was dismissed for lack of standing. And so potentially, what does that mean for future challenges? You know, if someone comes by with a little bit more pronounced injury claim or they state their argument just a little differently, do you think that the court is less inclined to hear one of these cases? in the future? Well, this is my own personal opinion. Now, I think what the court is saying here is, if this is the quality of plaintiffs, and if this is the quality of challenge that you're going to bring to us on the ACA, all y'all better go sort this out legislatively. That's my opinion on what's going to happen, because I think that the reason it was 7-2 with a 6-3 conservative majority court, is that this was just not a great set of plaintiffs and really not a great set of facts. That's my opinion. So I think that the ACA is not safe. I think there are going to be a lot of challenges to the ACA, which will continue to evolve. But I think those challenges are going to happen in legislatures before the 2022 midterms and very soon after as the lay of the land could change from that. Well, we'll leave it there, Aaron. I think it's a, a sound analysis there. Thank you so much for, for being here. I really enjoyed our conversation. So have I. Thanks for having me, Lawrence. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We appreciate the time you invest with us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, please give us the maximum amount of stars that your favorite podcasting app allows. It's good for the show. It's good for our sponsor. And speaking of which, one more thank you to our sponsor, Noda, for their generous support. You can find them at trustnoda.com forward slash legal. That's Noda spelled N-O-T-A. And last but never least, thank you to our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LTN Audio crew for their dedication and tireless efforts. It's always appreciated, gang. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Colletti. Have a great day, everybody.